Hi folks, this is Chalen. We are joined by a very special guest today. It is April 22nd, and if today is Friday, then this is The Delve. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is leading the latest front of the culture war, this time against teaching Florida's youth about LGBTQ issues, LGBTQ history, or the very existence of gay people. He is telling all Florida public school teachers, don't say gay. Leading at the forefront of this fight against the new law is Equality Florida. I could think of no better person to discuss this law and its harms than Brandon Wolf, their press secretary. Brendan is also a passionate activist and a post nightclub survivor. In 2016, the shooting at the nightclub shook America to its core as 49 people died and 53 others were wounded. We will have plenty of time to get to this law, but I first want to give the audience a chance to really meet Brandon and hear about his early life journey, his personal account of the shooting at Pulse, and his work at Equality Florida. The following content is disturbing. We will hear about the traumatizing events that unfolded at Pulse Nightclub, so I encourage everyone to prepare themselves emotionally before proceeding. Without further ado, Let's have a listen. Mr. Brandon Wolf, thank you so much for coming on to the Delve. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Definitely. I feel like your story, it relates to me so much. And um, probably a lot of folks in the LGBTQ uh, community, especially folks of color. So really, really excited to kind of like delve into this. So as we get started, I kind of want you to... Tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us your story. You wrote a tweet um, a couple of days ago. I don't know if you know this. It kind of went viral. Uh, a little, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. So tell me a little bit about that and, and about you and your life. Yeah, I appreciate it, and and thank you. I'm I'm excited to have this conversation. Grateful to be face to face as much as we can yeah. uh, in a virtual setting. I live in Florida now. I live in Orlando, but. I haven't always lived here. I think like a lot of people, Orlando has become a touchdown place for me. It's become a place to reinvent myself and and find a new sense of community. I actually grew up in a really rural part of Oregon, about 25 minutes outside the city of Portland. And so when I when I tell people I'm from the Portland area, they get this uh, this idea of what that looks like, right? They're imagining like Birkenstock sandals and gloomy days with coffee shops and pink hair and tattoos. Everybody smokes weed. It's like this leftist utopia. And that's probably true if you live in in parts of of the city of Portland. But, you know, I think like most of the country, I grew up in this really rural part um, that's very different from the urban parts of Oregon. Um, you can imagine the sort of town that I grew up in, you know, with just a handful of stoplights, kind of town where you, you know, if you counted every head of livestock, there's probably more cows than there are people. The kind of town where you go to school with the same people from kindergarten all the way through high school graduation. And in some ways, that's great because you build really deep bonds with people that stick with you for the entire time you're there. And in other ways, it's really challenging, I think, especially for LGBTQ people and and very especially for uh, LGBTQ people of color. So as a kid, you know, this town that I grew up in didn't really look a lot like me didn't really live or love a lot like me. In fact, when I graduated high school, there were 2000 students in my school and only 11 of us were black. Uh, And so, you know, most of my young life, 
was spent feeling like I didn't belong. Even in my own home, I, I sometimes felt like a stranger who'd overstayed his welcome. The tweet that I shared was um, some of the process that I went through when I was coming out. When I was 17 years old, I was a senior in high school and a local mom found out that I was dating someone in school and she just couldn't take it anymore. Uh, she ran and told absolutely every single person who would listen to her for more than five seconds what was going on. She told people at my church, she told other people at school, and it really turned my world upside down. Uh, she, you know, insinuated that somehow my sexual orientation was contagious, that, you know, if other parents let their kids stay around me for too long, that they would turn out gay as well. And so there were kids who were removed from classes with me. There were, you know, kids who stopped showing up to, to practice, to choir practice after school. And it was traumatizing. It was a really challenging time because, you know, being a 17-year-old kid, thinking about college, going off and, and learning how to be an adult. The thing you need most is a place to belong. You need a place to call home. You need family, you need friends, you need community. And this town that I knew so well, that knew me so deeply suddenly felt like I didn't belong there anymore. And so, you know, the end of senior year was about as hellish as you can imagine. There were actually protests to end the school year where parents from across town showed up with signs that said it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. They shouted down administrators, harassed students going in and out of their classrooms, essentially arguing that queer people were silencing the majority of people that we were forcing ourselves onto the rest of society. And that came at a time when, you know, LGBTQ issues weren't seen nearly in the same light that they are today. Uh, it was just a couple years before that, that my home state of Oregon banned same-sex marriage by constitutional amendment. So the climate was, was not ripe for me to be myself. And I remember being told as a young person frequently that the world was never going to be ready for someone like me that I was always going to have to squeeze myself into some box on a census form, that I was always going to have to tone it down, mute it, stiffen my wrists and wear something a little less colorful if I wanted to survive until the next day. And so I, I did what I think so many young people do in our community. I packed two suitcases and I ran away. Uh, when I graduated high school, I went off to college for a bit Still didn't really feel like I fit in. I fit in there because, um, you know, I was like going to school an hour and a half from where I grew up, and it looked a lot like home. And so one day I told my dad I'm moving to Orlando, Florida. He was surprised. I had never been to Orlando, Florida before, so I think he yeah, was. Yeah, that's uh, he a little was surprising. It's, it's kind of random bit. from. It's Oregon. a bit random, but I'm an adventurous <laughs> guy, uh, and so I did. I packed two suitcases and I moved. 3,500 miles away uh, to where I live now. And I have been back a couple of times to visit. I don't stay in my hometown when I go home. I actually stay in the city. I've spent very little time. I think I've actually uh, been to my hometown maybe twice in the last 13 years. Wow. Um, and one of those times, it's a really interesting uh, story, maybe for another podcast to go in depth, but <laughs> one of those times I kicked off an anti-bullying week at mm -hmm. my former high school. They actually asked me to come and be the keynote speaker. Oh, wow. um, and I shared with that audience of students that it was actually kind of traumatizing to be in that, in that situation in the same gymnasium where, you know, people mm -hmm. hurled just the most horrific words at me. Uh, a decade before. So it's been a really interesting journey, but I'm, I'm so grateful to have found a home in Orlando, to have found a community and, and a chosen family. And I know that that resonates deeply with folks in our community.
Yeah, no, I, I, I love this one. Like I was saying, there's, there's so much kind of like overlap. It's kind of tough when you're growing up in, you know, in the community and you're finding out things about yourself and you're like, whoa, I'm a little different from everyone. And then there's this other layer on top of it when it's like, I don't know anyone who's like myself, you know, some type of like adult to kind of like guide you through it. And then you have another layer on top of that. And you're like, I'm a person of color. It's a very lonely existence, especially when you're so young, you know, you're like 17. It's very, very difficult. So you move to, um, move to Orlando. Um, you're starting your new life there. Then you're hit with another pretty traumatic event, a pulse. Yeah, I think in order for you to understand what happened on June 12th of 2016, you have to know why Pulse was an important space in our community to begin with. Uh, When I got to Orlando, things were very different. But I also felt that sense of excitement and adventure that I was was sort of looking for. And, And I started to explore what it meant to be an out queer person of color in this country. I had freedom for the first time. And so really liberated. Liberated. Yeah, that really yeah. is the word. And and I did find that. I found that. I worked for Disney for five years. I found that, you know, in my fellow cast members and some of the friends yeah. that I made there. I found it in physical spaces like Pulse Nightclub. And in 2014, I met the person who would change my life forever, my best friend, Drew. And to that point, you know, I... I sort of thought chosen family was like a little bit of a hokey term, you know, nothing can totally replace family, no matter your feeling toward them was sort of my, my thought process at that time. Uh, But Drew sort of changed that trajectory for me. I'll never forget the first time we met uh, was a a blind date, sort of like a half blind date, because uh, like any good millennial, I had thoroughly Instagram stalked him and like picked out names for our children and all of that sort of thing, decided who was going to take whose last name. That's, um, that's really and I, funny. It's, you know, it's how we do. <laughs> and we do. <laughs> uh, I saw a mutual friend, my roommate at the time was, was liking all of his photos. And so I thought I'd take a leap of faith. And I asked him if he would set us up on a date. And so he agreed. Uh, I got to P.F. Chang's the night of our date. And, and you should know that I'm I'm really naturally an introverted person. So um, I'm good if you put me on a stage with 10,000 people watching. Right, right, right. I'm not so good sitting across the table from someone I'm interested <laughs> in. My hands are all sweaty. And yeah, I'm, you're like uh, clamming up. <laughs> all of that. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was my experience. And to get myself like in the mode earlier that night, I'd stood in front of the mirror and like prepped for the small talk questions like okay he's gonna so, ask you so you were like all right let's get I was invested I was, yeah, invested I was convinced that this was my future husband so you know you got to put some effort into it I love that um so I get to P.F. Chang's I'm walking up I can see his silhouette through the door which of course you know my hands start to sweat immediately uh I open the door I sit down we order some drinks and I remember it vividly he's like holding his big martini glass he takes a sip and he looks at me and he says I have a question for you and I thought well <laughs> I have been preparing I'm ready for this yeah. literally all day so <laughs> I think we're set and he said what are your thoughts on the for-profit healthcare industry in America and the impact it has on consumers <laughs> is, and I like this- show one of your you questions know, that you prep for? It was not. And and I suddenly <laughs> w- wondered if maybe I was like on an episode of Punked or in a job interview or something. But, you know, I took a sip of my cocktail and I'm like, well, we're here on this adventure. So you just got to roll with it. And I told him how, how I felt about the abomination that is our healthcare system and how, you know, it profits off of leaving people sick and dying and all the things I feel about uh, the for-profit healthcare industry in America. And... It was the most remarkable feeling to sit with someone 
and talk about what I believe and what I feel and not for a moment be thinking about, you know, the judgment he might be passing on me. It was, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. And on top of that, there he is, you know, also a queer person, a queer person of color. He was um, half Finnish and half Japanese. And he was so effortless in the way he moved through the world. And so that one question turned into an entire evening of, you know, talking about all the, the current events and issues and pop culture. And, and I found it incredibly fascinating and empowering that we sat there the entire night and never once did I look over my shoulder to double check to make sure the person in the booth behind us was, was not listening. Never once did I flinch or lower my voice when we were talking about boys, the, the recent boys we dated. I felt at home and at ease for what really was the first time in my memory being an out queer person of color in a public setting. And I attribute that to the way that Drew made me feel. It felt so comfortable and so easy. I regret to inform you that neither one of us ended up taking the other's last name. We did not get married. Uh, (laughs) It was pretty clear from the beginning that we were destined to be best friends. And and that's how it happened. It was like overnight. Eventually, I moved into Mm. the apartment next door to him. And so, you know, for the next couple of years since since we went on our, our date, that was life. It was the thing that People, you know, adults had told me the world was never going to be ready to give someone like me. I felt almost like I had stolen a piece of someone else's normalcy and I had to try really hard to hold on to it and not let anyone find out because it might be taken away from me. We in this community refer to June 11th of 2016 as the last normal day. and It was very normal in every way. It was Saturday. It was laundry day. Drew and Juan were on a date at SeaWorld. So while I was wearing like the scrubbiest clothes that I own, nursing a champagne hangover from the day before, of course, they like look so cute in front of uh, roller coasters, posting photos on Facebook. I spent some time by the pool. and, And as the day wound to a close, I did the most normal thing. I texted Drew and Juan and asked if they wanted to go out and get a drink. They got to my apartment just before midnight, which was a little late for us. We listened to the same soundtrack we always listened to. Drew had this weird collection of music videos that he liked to watch to get himself in the mood to go out. They're bizarre, and I would be happy if I never saw one of them again. But uh, <laughs> for him, it was like his getting ready this to go This is like out. the pregame. Yeah, the pregame moment. Yeah. And uh, he almost never let me have control of the cocktail shaker because I make drinks way too strong. But, you know, that night he like relinquished control of the cocktail shaker and grimaced every time he took a sip of this drink that I made. And when it came time to decide where to go, we went to the place we were most familiar with. You know, Pulse Nightclub was maybe one of the first public spaces I ever held hands with someone without looking over my shoulder first. Pulse nightclub was one of the first places where I wore my skinniest pair of jeans without being worried about being called a faggot. Pulse was a place where you could just be who you are, live in your skin, and be proud of that. You may not know everyone who roamed the different rooms of the club, but there was a sense of family when you were there. There was a a sense of safety. And so when we pulled up to Pulse that night, it was normal in every way. The line was sort of long outside. Uh, There was this scowling drag queen behind the front desk that always snatched my $5 out of my hand. Uh, You would part this sort of beaded doorway and go inside. The music was as loud as it always was. We went to the same bartender we always went to, ordered the same drinks we always ordered. And we had a spot on the patio that we went out to once we'd got our first round. And Drew um, had a master's degree in clinical psychology. And uh, when 
he'd had a drink or two, he would offer you free therapy sessions, whether you particularly wanted them or not. (laughs) Uh, And so that night he offered a free therapy session and he was talking about community and, and love. He talked about his dismay that we so often let the little, the little things get in the way of how much we care about one another. He asked why it is that as humans, we can't see each other as similar before we see each other as different. And when he was coming in for a landing with his point, he would like drape a long arm around your shoulder and really bring it home. So he draped his arm around my shoulder and he said, um, you know what I wish we did more often is tell each other that we love each other. And for me, that moment is, is so vivid because it's the last real authentic moment I got with my best friend. Uh, It was just a few minutes later after uh, just before two o'clock in the morning that I stepped into the bathroom. We'd made the decision that we were not 19 years old and probably did not need to be closing a club. And so I was just going to wash my hands and, and then we would call an Uber. I remember standing in a urinal that was the same one I'd been in front of many times before. I remember this poster above it with, you know, colorful drag queen faces that I was familiar with. I remember turning to wash my hands and this plastic cup sitting on the edge of the sink looking like it it might fall off. I remember how cold the water was from the faucet that night. And I distinctly remember the first sound of gunshots. I remember the hair standing up on the back of my neck, the, the smell of blood and smoke that almost immediately wafted into the room. Uh, I remember the looks on people's faces as they flooded into the bathroom. There was this debate about whether we should try to run or hide. I remember locking arms with about a dozen people that I had never met before, whose names I don't know to this day, and just making a run for it. This relentless bang, bang, bang in the background. I remember just telling myself to put one foot in front of the other and not look left into the club because I knew that whatever I saw in there, I would never be able to forget. I remember this sliver of light in the back of the club from a door that I didn't even know existed and just sprinting toward it, telling myself just left and then right and left and then right. Halfway through the room, I took a moment to wonder what it would have been like if I'd gotten a chance to say goodbye to my parents first, because I was convinced that I was going to die in that club. And then the door flung open and I was outside and there was still this bang, bang, bang in the background and people jumping over fences and hedges and there was blood and screaming, but there was also this sense of relief for me because I had done the unthinkable, I had survived. And I also remember how fleeting that sense of relief was when I realized that in normal fashion, exactly as they always were, Drew and Juan had still been standing in the center of the dance floor underneath the disco ball, wrapped in each other's arms directly in the path of the shooter. Well. I, I'm like getting chills um, thinking, uh, you know, hearing your story. Um, even though I, I was living in New York at this time, in, and this happened, you know, thousand plus miles away from me, we felt that, you know, so far away because it's like that could have been like our night out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to like rehear it all over again, it's, 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 you can say it's moving, but it's like so much more than that. Um, it's such a deep story, you know? You know, yeah. I, I appreciate you giving me space to, to take you through it all because I think the part that resonates with 
the queer community and, and especially queer people of color is that sense of safety being ripped away. The sense of chosen family, you know, being incinerated in a, in a moment of rage and fury, because those are the, the things that we hold on to so tightly. You know, when I was growing up, school wasn't a safe place to be and church wasn't a safe place to be, and home wasn't even a very safe place to be most of the time. The only safe places we had were the ones we carved out for one another. The only safe communities we had were the ones that we created together. And Pulse was one of those places, but it was only the physical embodiment of what community really meant, what chosen family really meant. And the fact that that was ripped away so violently, so hatefully, I think is what really resonates with queer people, not just here in the US, but across the world, because we all know what it feels like to feel like our safe spaces are under threat or under siege all the time. We all know what it feels like to desperately want a place to belong only to be rejected by the people who are supposed to be there to care for us. What happened at Pulse was about so much more than one nightclub on one night. It was about a sense of safety, a sense of progress being destroyed in an instant, sort of our, our innocence or our naivety in the wake of incredible things like marriage equality being torn away. And, and we were forced to see the sort of naked, ugly truth of the world again. And so that's why I, I feel it necessary to take people through the entire story so that they can get a, a glimpse of what it feels like to be a queer person and specifically a queer person of color in this country every day. I want to move us into some of the work that you're doing today because things that are going down in Florida that don't say gay and this bill, it's kind of like mesticizing into other states as well. It's becoming yeah. kind of like a, a national challenge. So I, I want you to tell listeners a little bit about the work that you're doing um, at Equality Florida. Sure. So Equality Florida is the state's largest LGBTQ civil rights organization. I tell people that our charge is to defend Floridians from discrimination and bigotry, especially state sanctioned. I didn't know who Equality Florida was before the shooting at Pulse. Uh, I first became acquainted with the organization when the executive director asked me to coffee a few weeks after the shooting. And she's one of the first people who didn't ask me for something. She just wanted to check in and provide support. You know, they really specifically helped me financially get back on my feet. And then in 2019, I got a call from that same executive director and she offered me to help write my own position. She said, you know, you want to be in this work full time. We have the resources to help you do that. What would it look like for you to, to be in this work? Uh, and I knew right away that one of the things I wanted to do was help people tell their stories. I tell people all the time that I think everyone has an art form. I feel like words are my art form. And I wanted to help other people find their passion for, for sharing their stories. So I'm very honored to be the organization's first full-time press secretary. That means I get to help LGBTQ Floridians tell their stories every day. And then when it comes to, to legislative battles like Don't Say Gay, I get to help center our voices and our lived experiences in that conversation. I guess, what kind of issues have Equality Florida worked on in the past? Well, Equality Florida, from its inception, has been about pushing back against discrimination. Um, so from a policy perspective, we've always been at the forefront of pushing for pro-equality policy. We had a 24-year track record of defeating all anti-LGBTQ policy that came from the state legislature. We're very proud of that. Obviously, the last two years have been very difficult in an entirely different political climate emboldened by 
people like like Donald Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis. And then outside of that, we do a lot of educational work. Uh, we ask the question, what are we not doing? Because we can change all the policies we want, but if we're still allowing for the kind of conditions that lead to the violence we saw at Pulse, then we're not doing enough. We have to change the way the world sees LGBTQ people. We have to change the kind of environments that young people are being raised in. And so all that to say, we we do a lot of political work. We do a lot of policy work, obviously pushing for good things, fighting bad things. But some of the work that we're most proud of has been in educating the public and helping to share stories and and hopefully helping to reshape educational and, and company environments to be more inclusive of LGBTQ people. I thought this would be a good place to take a break and consider the Don't Say Gay law. Caitlyn Jenner, who came out at the age of 65, who, in her words, wanted to try something new from the age of eight or nine. She began experimenting with trying on her mother or sister's clothes while they were out of the house. She is facing backlash after voicing her support for DeSantis's Don't Say Gay bill on Fox. Did, Cal- did Florida do the right thing, banning the teaching of gender identity to very young children? Absolutely. I'm a big supporter of Ron DeSantis and what he's doing. I'm a parent. Uh, I have a very large family, raised a very large family, a lot of grandkids. And um, I have been in control of my children's destiny and what they're going to learn in school. Uh, Not some math teacher teaching my kids about gender identity. Right. I can teach those lessons. So, yes, I am in support of Ron DeSantis and what he has done there. Jenner says that she wants to be in charge of teaching her children about gender identity. And maybe to some people, this bill and others like it feel trivial. Or maybe they agree with Caitlin here. Gosh, I I would want my child to talk to me about these issues as well, not their math teacher. But that line of thinking assumes that children are safe talking to their parents. And that's not always the case. There are between 1.6 and 2.8 million homeless youth in the United States. Of those, 20 to 40% of them identify as gay, lesbian, bi, queer, or transgender. This is compared to only 5 to 10% of the overall youth population. In New York, 14 is the average age that lesbian and gay youth become homeless, age 13 for transgender youth. The truth is, the only indoctrination children receive is one of heteronormativity. From birth, we are assigned pink or blue. We are called pretty or strong. We are a ladies' man or someone's future wife. They print it on onesies. We are told from infancy that we can't do this or can't do that because it's only for girls or only for boys. Oh, what a laugh grown-ups have when we bond with our classmates of the opposite gender. Is he your boyfriend? All of this is incessant, and the stakes couldn't be higher. An estimated 1.8 million LGBTQ youth seriously consider suicide each year in the U.S. This community is four times more likely to attempt suicide than their peers and at least one person attempts suicide every 45 seconds. Now imagine a world where children grow up free to explore their identities with a diverse set of role models who can trust the adults in their lives to support them and speak with them honestly, or can turn to a teacher when they suspect or know that their parents aren't going to cherish them if they were honest about who they are. Now let's get back to the interview and hear more about this law. And I, I want to hop over to 
Governor DeSantis when he makes these claims that children are being um, indoctrinated in their schools by LGBTQ education. When he says things like that, what is he talking about? Well, I want to start by dispelling or debunking a myth. I just told you my story about growing up as a queer person of color in a very heteronormative, cis-normative, yeah. uh, white community. And guess what? It still turned out very gay. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm far more gay today than I ever have been, uh, which means that all of the claims of indoctrination really are false. People are not turned gay. They're not turned trans by the existence of LGBTQ people. They just are gay. They are trans. That's who they are. And the best thing we can do for them is to provide an environment where they can be themselves in a safe and affirming way where they don't feel like they're less than or other because of who they are or how they identify, where they don't consider the worst taking their own lives because they don't feel like there's a place for them in the world, but rather that they feel empowered and emboldened to go out and thrive to be the very best versions of themselves. What's so dangerous about the language that Governor DeSantis uses is not only that it's steeped in sort of the age-old bigotry that uh, has long made life difficult for LGBTQ people, but it's that that bigotry has also long been used to justify violence and discrimination against LGBTQ people. Consider that, you know, the same rhetoric about LGBTQ people simply by existing being a threat to the well-being of children or, or indoctrinating or corrupting people is the same rhetoric that was used to try to block us from being teachers. It's the same rhetoric that was used to try to block us from getting married and adopting children and using the bathroom. It's the same rhetoric that's used to, to rip books about us off of shelves, to censor speech about us in classrooms. All of that is sanctioned bigotry and discrimination when you have the governor of the third largest state in the union using that same age-old bigoted language to target LGBTQ people. Make no mistake, he knows exactly what he's doing when he sends his spokesperson out into the world to accuse anyone who doesn't support erasing LGBTQ families from classrooms to label them pedophiles and groomers. He knows exactly what he's doing. He is giving license to the most extreme parts of our society society to engage in discrimination, bullying, and potentially violence against LGBTQ people in order to, you know, push back on our existence. And the way that's showing up in this state right now that's terrifying to me is that young people are being targeted. There's a 17-year-old student named Will here in Central Florida who's been incredibly courageous and brave throughout this whole process, sharing their story of being a queer person, sharing what it's like to be going to school during this entire debate. Will's social media feeds right now are filled with accusations of pedophilia, with grotesque comments about Will's clothing, about Will's just general look and demeanor, about Will's identity and their pronouns. And on top of that, there's real concern that Will's safety may be compromised. And all of that is in service to a governor simply regurgitating, you know, the, the hideous anti-LGBTQ rhetoric from the 1960s, 70s, even into the 80s and 90s in order to score political points with some base who's been rabidly obsessed with Donald Trump. Trump and is now looking for their next leader to latch onto. So it's dangerous. It's disturbing. Governor DeSantis doesn't really care about the outcomes for LGBTQ young people. He doesn't care about the damage that his words do. What he cares about is whipping up right-wing folks into a frenzy. And it appears he's willing to, you know, scrape at the very bottom of the barrel to achieve that.
It's it's really weird to me. And I'm like a pretty religious person, actually, which is um, might be a little strange to some folks who are listening in because we uh, we cover a range of topics. But for folks, especially politicians, to kind of like focus on, you know, homosexuality is kind of like the issue of, you know, especially if they're kind of like basing in some type of religious pretext. I mean, you could say like maybe there should be a campaign to not eat shellfish. We're not shutting down like every red lobster. Maybe there should be a campaign that we don't mix fabrics. We're not shutting down, you know, Levi's and what have you because they're using they're using two different fabrics when they make clothing. So to pick this one, it's unfortunate because you're targeting some of the most vulnerable and some of the most weak people. And uh, it's it's disgusting. It's 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 very unlike God. So it's it's very strange for me. And yeah, yeah you no, know, the, the selective weaponization of faith um, yeah. that is designed at its core to not only uphold systems of, you know, patriarchy, misogyny, white supremacy, but also to simply control people. Right. And and I think, you know, I grew up Seventh-day Adventist. And my, my family is very conservative and religious. And, and so I, you know, had a front row seat to a lot of the ways that uh, conservative faiths interact with LGBTQ people. And what I found, you know, most disturbing and what I find most disturbing today are the parallels between some of the rhetoric that is used to achieve adherence to things in the church and some of the same authoritarian rhetoric that comes from politicians. There is this sort of you know, in, in what you're talking about, in the selective weaponization of faith, there is this punitive nature of, of being a person of faith. There is this air of retribution all the time that if you step out of line, you will be punished for it. Instead of inspiring and emboldening people to be good people, we threaten them with, you know, with hell or retribution if they don't cross their T's and dot their I's all the time. And from my vantage point, that is nothing short of humans using faith to control one another. And where it becomes incredibly dangerous in this setting is that we're talking about the power of the state government. We're talking about, you know, politicians and a government that is supposed to be designed for and by the people that is being weaponized against people in service to, again, trying to control others. And the excuse that's given oftentimes is, you know, a false sense of morality or faith in something. I, I don't consider myself a particularly religious person today, but I, I did study religious texts a lot when I was young. We were asked to read the Bible multiple times when I was a kid. And so I'm pretty familiar with it. And the takeaway I got was not that humans have license to exact punishment on one another in service of a God that's out there, but rather that each one of us is challenged to love one another despite our differences, despite our flaws. For me, that was the the core takeaway of the religious text of the Bible. And it's sad to me that so many seem to have perverted that text and use it as a weapon or a bludgeon against people instead of maybe taking the lesson away that Jesus spent a lot of time with prostitutes and sinners, and that was because he loved them and cared for them deeply. That feels to me like a more important lesson than constantly using faith to, to beat people into submission. No, I think you're exactly right. And, and it's, it's, it's weird because it's, it's coming from folks who are probably not even the most religious. And so they're, it's, it's like a clear perversion just to kind of like 
forward an agenda, which mm-hmm. probably makes it so much even more bizarre. And folks would kind of like fall for that trap. You know, it kind of hurts my heart. I'm Jewish, so it's 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 just really weird <laughs> because it's, you know it's it, it, a lot of it's derived from you know an Old Testament text, and um, it's 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 just very strange to me. But and and I feel like the other thing that's kind of scary about this is that yeah, it's at a state level right now. But say Republicans were to take either branch or either um, House and in Congress, you know, this could very quickly become a national issue where they're trying to pass bills that are very similar to this or even worse or scarier. It's, it's very, it's very scary times to be um, in this community in America. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to, I don't want to like heap on the, the fear mongering, uh, yeah, um, but, but I will, <laughs> I know. Right. But I will say um, it already is a national movement. Mm, we are yeah. in the midst, we are in the midst of a national onslaught against LGBTQ people. And that looks like, you know, a number of different things. First and foremost, it looks like these bills being introduced and pushed in state legislatures across the country. Just last night in the 11th hour, in the very same way that ours was passed, Georgia passed an outright uh, ban on trans kids participating in sports. We've seen don't say gay legislation in at least six or seven other states already with more to come. We saw Texas's lieutenant governor yesterday on a rant against Disney saying that passing a don't say gay style law would be among his first priorities next legislative session. These are coordinated attacks. These bills are not written by individual lawmakers existing in a silo. They're written by anti-LGBT right-wing think tanks and then copy and pasted in all of these state legislatures. So, you know, I want to flag for people that if you're waiting for some congressional version or you think it's not that serious until the don't say gay law in front of Congress, that is already happening on a state by state level. And it's something we have to be extremely vigilant about. And the, the second thing that I would say is that it's already been baked into the Republican Party platform ahead of this election cycle and ahead of the 2024 presidential election cycle. Unfortunately, Florida at the center of that again, our, our state, our Senator uh, Rick Scott, who used to be governor before, put out his own version of the Republican Party platform ahead of the midterms. And it's essentially all of the things we're talking about on steroids. It is the complete erasure of trans people entirely. The, the platform essentially says that trans people do not exist. It is the breaking up of LGBTQ families claiming that we are an assault to the nuclear family. So it's a lot of the sort of rhetoric that we're hearing on a state level, supercharged and put on a national platform. Rick Scott would love for the entire Republican Party to run on that in the midterms. And then of course, there's the the elephant in the room. And that is that Ron DeSantis really wants to run for president in 2024. All of this is building him toward that sort of national platform. He really wants to, to be crowned the next heir apparent to the Trump supporting right wing base. And this is his chosen avenue to do that. And so he's, you know, sort of served up this buffet of culture wars in Florida that include don't say gay, they include anti CRT legislation, they include a 15 week abortion ban, they include anti immigrant rhetoric. He just vetoed congressional maps because he wants to eliminate two majority black voting districts in the state. All of these things are happening. 
right now in the state of Florida, and they're in service to his resume to go run for president in 2024. So again, if you feel like this is far away because you live in New York or California or Washington state, the truth is that you could have a Republican nominee for president in 2024 in Ron DeSantis, who will simply be running on the national versions of all of these right-wing culture war issues that he's introduced in Florida. Right. Which is, it's not far away. That's, you know, as soon as, you know, these congressional elections are over, it's going to start, you know, the race for for president. And just to put a button on that, Ron DeSantis is up for re-election this year. Yeah. Uh, He very, very narrowly won the last time. It went to a recount where he beat Andrew Gillum by something like 30,000 votes of the 9 million votes that were cast. And so this will, I think for him, feel like a litmus test. Can he run on a far right authoritarian, anti-democratic platform and win re-election by a more sizable margin than he won the first time. And if he does, then you can expect the next two years Um, for him to turn it up to a volume that that may be unimaginable at this time. Yeah, that's actually scary to think about. It is. You okay. just got a tinge of what Floridians feel every single yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I like, I'm like, whoa, goodness. Okay, so I, I, I want to talk, I guess, like a little bit about what the "Don't Say Gay" bill is. So, you know, along with preventing instruction of LGBTQ topics, what are they banning? What are they trying to do with this? And it's how really, do they enforce it? It's a really good question, and it's the right question because you know Republicans essentially lost the narrative a long time ago. And got angry and got angry and lashed out in this, you know, in this fashion that the governor has chosen, which is to just accuse everyone who disagrees with them of being a pedophile. It's just so strange. Like, why is everything about pedophilia? Well, (laughs) number one, it's projection, always. Uh, The party, the party of Matt Gates and Donald Trump should not be lecturing the country on, you know, sexual. It's strange. We did an episode, I want to say two episodes ago on, on QAnon, and there's a huge chunk of that yeah, defending children from pedophilia. And it's so random. It's, you know, obviously sad and it's, it's horrifying, but it's just such a random thing. It's baked in homophobia and transphobia, right? Yeah, that is, yeah, yeah, yeah. At its core, that's what it is. There's always been this insinuation that the existence of LGBTQ people is somehow scandalous and dangerous to children, yeah. right? Anita Bryant used it in the 1970s. She was a, a Florida supermodel, I think, who then went to try to build a national political career. And in doing that, she launched the Save Our Children campaign. And she was campaigning oh. on saving children from homosexuals. So it is sort of the, the the age old insinuation is that LGBTQ people are dangerous to children, yeah. that we pose a threat. And in order to stop us, we have to be erased. And so that is what's been drummed up by Governor DeSantis in sort of the way that he talks about the bill. But that's not what it is. It, it actually has nothing to do with the law at all. So the law was nicknamed Don't Say Gay by the community because that was the easiest way for the community to explain what the impact of it would be. From the beginning, it's been a bill about censoring conversations about LGBTQ people in classrooms. So the letter of the law says that classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity are prohibited in grades K-3 and they are restricted in grades 4 through 12. So what does that mean? Well, 
The short answer is we don't really know because some of those words don't have a meaning in Florida statute. This has long been our argument about the vagueness and broadness oh God. of the bill. Okay. <laughs> so I'll give you an example. Yeah. All right. The term, the term classroom instruction does not have a meaning in Florida statute. Seems pretty important if you're prohibiting or restricting classroom instruction to know what classroom instruction even means, right? And even though we led efforts to clarify what classroom instruction means. We help to lead efforts to narrow it to curriculum or to get some sense of clarity from the bill's sponsors and supporters on what it meant. They refused all along because the vagueness is the point. So here's a, a really a really important real world example of what I'm talking about. In second grade, Florida students are required to complete the family tree project, which is where they get a little picture of a tree and they draw their family on it, right? Okay, and then they okay. give a presentation yeah. about their families. If a second grader comes to school and on a branch, they've drawn their two moms and they say, and on this branch, I have my two moms. Another kid in the class says, two moms, that's weird. Where's your dad? Yeah. And so you can see how the don't say gay law <laughs> got its name because gay is a sexual orientation. And if we're restricting or prohibiting what teachers are allowed to acknowledge or affirm about people in the classroom, it's pretty clear that that sounds a lot like don't say gay in the classroom. Yeah. And the result of that is extremely damaging because sure. what do you do if you're a cash-strapped school district who's been fighting with Governor DeSantis and you can't afford to hire attorneys to be fighting a law like this. And so you're faced with this choice, right? Do you continue to allow teachers to teach in an authentic and affirming way? Do you continue to encourage actual conversations in the classroom about who people's families are? Or do you shut it down? You try to avoid a lawsuit by simply telling teachers don't talk about families that are different. Don't talk about any of that in the classroom. You peel rainbow safe space stickers off of the window. Mm -hmm. You tell teachers who have a same-sex partner to put that picture of their family in the desk because you don't want to risk an angry parent suing the school district and being trapped in litigation for the next six months or a year. Those are the chilling effects that are the purpose of the law, and they're the ones that are already happening in the state of Florida. To close it out here, I'm struck yeah. by something that the guy who filed it said. In the last two days of the Senate debate, the Senate bill sponsor was asked repeatedly, why? Why this bill? Uh -huh. What is the purpose? And, and why sexual orientation and gender identity? If you're worried about young kids learning about sensitive topics, why not questions of life and death? Why not suicide? Why not drug use? Why are those things not sensitive enough to restrict or prohibit, but this one is? What's the yeah. motivation? And on the second to last day of that debate, he stood there and he said, I'm drawn to this bill because I'm concerned that so many young people feel comfortable coming out as LGBTQ and we need to put a stop to it. He said the quiet part out loud that this bill is designed <laughs> what? to force people back into the closet. That's what it's for. Okay, so it is the the enforcement of it is it left to parents or is it there like some type of tip line or hotline? The parents call you know the state you know I don't know Department of Education. Then Department of Education does like an investigation. How how does it work? Well, I mean it it sounds so strange. It is. So this is sort of the Frankenstein's monster of what happened in Texas with the abortion bill. Oh, uh, right, right, right. Yeah. That is that the enforcement mechanism is, is the deputizing of yeah. parents. Parents are empowered to take action against a school district if they think the law has been violated. And so what uh -huh. does that look like? You know, let's say the, the example I gave you of the second grader in their right. family project, that first kid goes home and tells their parents, 
Today in class, I learned that families can have yeah. two moms and no dad. That parent has a choice. They can either mind their business to, and go on with life. Well, that's a choice they could take too. <laughs> uh, but if they feel that the bill, that the law has been violated, they could ask the Department of Education to appoint a special magistrate to investigate, or they could sue the school. Independently. Independently. And if they sue the school and go through the lawsuit route, that school has no way to recoup any of those fees. Even if the parent's lawsuit is found to be frivolous, they lose that in court, the school is still out all of the money they pay yeah. to attorneys and legal fees. So again, it brings us back to the question, if you're a school or a school district who's faced with that reality, what do you do? And the answer mm -hmm. is you pull back. Mm -hmm. You tell right. teachers to not talk about it because you don't want to risk it. And all along, that has been the point. The intent has been to chill speech about LGBTQ people in classrooms and to do it by so sufficiently scaring schools and school districts by threat of lawsuit that they simply stop talking about us altogether. It's it's bizarre. And it's it's I feel like, you know, these kind of more like social policies, they don't increase, you know, uh, living standards uh, for Americans. They don't, you know, increase healthcare. It, it does nothing to a person's, you know, livelihood. You're not benefiting Americans. You know, these are kind of like really silly bills. They do nothing except for hurt people more than help anyone. So, you know, if this was going to be some type of trial run for DeSantis, why not run on something? I mean, this isn't a real question, Brandon. I'm, I'm just, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not run on something that's like a little bit more hopeful? Like, why not run on, you know, policy things that people can, of all stripes, you know, expand your voter base, do something nice. I don't know. It's, it's so strange. You know, the unfortunate thing is that's just not where we are in mm. politics and very specifically with Republican Party leadership as it exists today. They are not interested in substantive policy proposals. That ship has long sailed. And in large part, it sailed as a party when they nominated Donald Trump. Yeah. And he essentially legislated culture war issues for four straight years because they had no substantive policy proposals to make people's lives better. There are real things happening in Florida that yeah. Governor DeSantis yeah. could focus on. There are yeah. things that Governor Ron DeSantis could do that would win him favor with not just his own party, but also people across the state of Florida. He right. could solve real problems for people. The issue is that if you're going to win a Republican primary for president in 2024, those things just don't work anymore. You mm -hmm. have to run on the lowest common denominator. The scariest, which is, the biggest, yeah, the craziest. Fear mongering about everybody else in society except yeah. those who look and live like you. Do you think that's something that worked for Trump, but might not translate over well for other Republican candidates? There's something about him that draws Republicans and droves, but maybe that won't translate over to DeSantis, or uh, maybe yeah. um, they actually need to present something a little bit more substantial. You know, potentially, I think that there are things about Donald Trump that certainly made him uniquely fit yeah. for that moment for the Republican <laughs> Party. I think there are things that endeared him to the Republican Party that only work for Donald Trump. You know, he's obviously not on Twitter anymore, but I did see a clip of him the other day for the first time in a while. And I was struck by how, although Governor DeSantis tries to emulate him frequently, DeSantis largely has the personality of a wet mop compared to Donald Trump. You, know, <laughs> you saw like that sort of firebrand uh, in a way that I had almost 
forced myself to forget uh, and move on from. And so I do wonder sometimes if the ability to deliver the message is part of the battle uh, and that DeSantis is successful with that here because it's smaller scale. And would that translate to a Republican primary where you have, you know, 10 or 15 people all trying to emulate Donald Trump at the same time? Um, It's going to come up as kind of corny. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it does. And I, I do think that, you know, whereas... I'm not a fan of Donald Trump at all, but I have heard people who support him say things like, he says it like it is, he's a tough guy, that sort of thing. I think that comes from his bombastic personality. I think sometimes when DeSantis tries to, you know, copy that same mannerism or behavior, he just comes across as irritable rather than bombastic and and a big personality. So he like did something with kids and they had masks on and and shouted at kids. And it was was like very strange. Yeah, it was very get off my lawn. It was unnecessary. (laughs) Um, And so I do wonder, I do wonder if people like DeSantis deliver the message in the same way that that resonates. But I'll tell you this, the policies that they're leading with do rev up the base. Mm. You know, I live in the state of Florida and I see it every single day. The same fanatic Twitter following that Donald Trump had, DeSantis has that too. And they're lobbing the same kinds of rhetoric that he is. Everyone's calling you a groomer and a pedophile, no matter what you have to say, because you have invoked DeSantis. So the things that he's saying and doing do strike a chord. They seem to be firing up a section of the base that he's very clearly intent on firing up. The question will be, do the rest of us who stand on the side of decency and humanity and dignity for everyone, do we have something to fight for? Do we have someone that that galvanizes us as we you know, look at the 2022 and 2024 election cycles? I think there's people out there and, and we'll see who rises to the top, but we desperately need to give people an alternative. We need to give people something to look forward to. We need to paint a vision of what's possible when you stop putting a target on the backs of trans kids and instead spend your resources trying to lift people out of poverty. When we start to have those conversations, instead of getting stuck fighting the culture wars, I think we have an opportunity to inspire people. Maybe that's just my hopeless optimism. I don't know. Well, that's perfect, Brandon, because I like to end these interviews asking folks what's something about the future that makes them hopeful or optimistic. This is such a gloomy topic. And like you were saying, DeSantis is like a wet mop. But what's something that makes you hopeful? I'm thinking about a moment during the last 10 weeks, which is how long we've been fighting the don't say gay now law. There was a moment where I almost lost hope, where we had done everything and and Mm. we'd been working 60, 70 hours a week. You know, we'd done incredible things that I never dreamt possible. You know, we were creating what we called surround sound coverage of Don't Say Gay, which meant that anywhere lawmakers showed up, they were seeing us. We'd done everything. And still they were ramming this bill down our throats. And I woke up one day and I just didn't know how long I could keep doing it. It's incredibly traumatizing and painful to to fight with everything you have for the dignity and respect of you and your community, only to be slapped in the face repeatedly. And I kid you not, it was that day that thousands of students began walking out of school across the state of Florida, uh, walkouts that they organized on their own. We had no part in it. They just got together across the state. 
And I remember watching this video of several hundred students in Tallahassee marching into the Capitol building, waving signs, chanting, we say gay, uh, Democratic politicians who opposed the bill coming out and dancing with them and singing with them. It was such a moment of unbridled joy and resistance through that joy that I was reminded why we do it every day. I was reminded why we get up and fight because those kids are worth fighting for. Their futures are worth fighting for. So you asked me what gives me hope in this moment, and it's them. Seeing their beautiful defiance, their insistence that there's a world that's better than the one we live in today, that we don't have to give in to the lowest common denominator of who we are as humans, but instead we can strive for, for more. They give me a lot of hope. And so I'm holding on to that. I sometimes like rewatch some of that coverage because it it fires me up all over again. And and I'm fully committed 100% in to give those young people every resource they need to go out and change the world because truthfully, they're already doing it. I love it. I think that's a really great part to end it at. Thanks so much, Brandon. I really, really appreciate it. This has been, it's been incredible. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For sure. Thank you all for listening in. This is such an intense topic and a lot of folks have a lot of feelings about it. But Republicans are using issues like these to win votes, not address the struggles that millions of Americans are facing, like student debt costs, crushing healthcare expenses, and soaring inflation. They don't put out plans for those things because they don't have them. And it's sad that they would attack the most vulnerable communities and now rip away support systems for innocent children. Where's the plan to assist with homelessness? Where's the plan to prevent suicides? Where's the plans to help bring down our food costs. There isn't any, so they're left with cheap shots, like this, to stir folks up instead of presenting smart intellectual arguments for the other matters that are striking families down. As a religious person, I ask, where is God in that? I want to leave you with a speech by Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow, who fired back at Republican Senator Lena Tice who had accused McMorrow of wanting to groom and sexualize kindergartners. Thank you, Mr. President. I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd District had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. So I sat on it for a while wondering why me? And then I realized, because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme, because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I'm one of them. You say she's a groomer. She supports pedophilia. She wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. Well, here's a little bit of background about who I really am. Growing up, my family was very active in our church. I sang in the choir. My mom taught CCD. One day, our priest called a meeting with my mom and told her that she was not living up to the church's expectations and that she was disappointing. My mom asked why. Among other reasons, she was told it was because she was divorced and because the priest didn't see her at mass every Sunday. So where was my mom on Sundays? She was at the soup kitchen with me. 
My mom taught me at a very young age that Christianity and faith was about being part of a community, about recognizing our privilege and blessings and doing what we can to be of service to others, especially people who are marginalized, targeted, and who had less often unfairly. I learned that service was far more important than performative nonsense like being seen in the same pew every Sunday or writing Christian in your Twitter bio and using that as a shield to target and marginalize already marginalized people. I also stand on the shoulders of people like Father Ted Hesburgh, the longtime president of the University of Notre Dame, who was active in the civil rights movement, who recognized his power and privilege as a white man, a faith leader, and the head of an influential and well-respected institution and who saw black people in this country being targeted and discriminated against and beaten and reached out to lock arms with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he was alive, when it was unpopular and risky and marching alongside them to say, we've got you to offer protection and service and allyship to try to right the wrongs and fix injustice in the world. So who am I? I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom who knows that the very notion that learning about slavery or redlining or systemic racism somehow means that children are being taught to feel bad or hate themselves because they are white is absolute nonsense. No child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. But each and every single one of us bears responsibility for writing the next chapter of history. Each and every single one of us decides what happens next and how we respond to history and the world around us. We are not responsible for the past. We also cannot change the past. We can't pretend that it didn't happen or deny people their very right to exist. I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom. I want my daughter to know that she is loved, supported, and seen for whoever she becomes. I want her to be curious, empathetic, and kind. People who are different are not the reason that our roads are in bad shape after decades of disinvestment, or that healthcare costs are too high, or that teachers are leaving the profession. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard, and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white, and Christian. We cannot let hateful people tell you otherwise to scapegoat and deflect from the fact that they are not doing anything to fix the real issues that impact people's lives. And I know that hate will only win if people like me stand by and let it happen. So I want to be very clear right now. Call me whatever you want. I hope you brought in a few dollars. I hope it made you sleep good last night. I know who I am. I know what faith and service means and what it calls for in this moment. We will not let hate win. Thank you all for listening in. I'm Chaylin and this is The Dow. I'll see you next Friday.